Welcome to episode 20 of Developer Melange, the podcast about developing software in the 21st century directly from Vienna, Austria. Developer Melange brings regular discussions about everything in software development. You can find us online on developermelange.github.io and you can follow us on Twitter via at devmelange, that's dev, M-E-L-A-N-G-E. We are very keen on learning what you think about the show or the podcast itself. So please reach out for us on Twitter or leave your comments on our website. We appreciate all your feedback. And now, here are your hosts. My name is David. I'm an enthusiastic software professional working in various projects using a bunch of different stacks and environments. And I prefer code simple and small instead of clever and edgy. My name is Christian Haas. I am a developer who embraces extreme programming. And I'm very proud to welcome once more our guest, Patrick Kua. Hi. Hi, Hi Patrick. Hello. So again, maybe for those people who, uh, who didn't listen to the first episode, maybe give us again a short introduction about you and what are you doing. Absolutely, yeah. I'm currently working for a mobile bank called N26, where a German-based bank uh, just came out in the UK last year. Uh, and just released uh, into the US this year. We're one of the unicorn startups in fintech in Europe at the moment. Um, the chief scientist and former CTO uh, at N26. Um, before that, I was consulting with ThoughtWorks for almost, uh, I think it was 16 years. So working in a whole bunch of different industries and published a number of books. Uh, the last one, the topic we'll be talking about is talking about building evolutionary architectures. So 16 years for Solo is quite a long time, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a bit like, uh, I, I like to describe it as, um, because you work in consulting, it's like actually a series of mini yeah, sure. adventures yeah. with different companies, but still being connected to a similar company. Because it was your first job? Uh, not my first job, no. Oh, okay. So, yeah, I was working for Oracle before that in an R&D sort of place, and then ah. a smaller uh, company before that. Cool, oh, that's great. Yeah, it's it's a real pleasure for, for me to have you here today and to talk about evolutionary architecture. Actually, this is a very interesting topic for me. And I read the book and I, I've, I think I've seen a lot of uh, talks you or also um, Neil Ford gave about it. Um, so, so maybe just a short elevator pitch, yeah, as, as we tend to say today. What is evolutionary architecture? Why do you think it's so important to know about this term? Yeah, absolutely. So I think given the age of sort of agile, I think architecture has kind of gone to being a dirty word. Um, and yeah. what we wanted to sort of capture with evolutionary architecture is that architecture is really important. Um, and the essence of building evolutionary architectures is designing systems for constant change. And so we talk about what does that mean? Um, part of this is really understanding what does it mean to build a system for things like continuous delivery. Um, but also really key is uh, really thinking explicitly about what you're trying to optimize a system for and using what we call fitness functions to help guide that change. Uh, so fitness functions are sort of borrowed from the idea of, say, uh, machine learning or AI, where you're trying to not describe how you do something, uh, but really trying to describe what does good look like from an architectural perspective. So if you're, uh, for example, trying to optimize a system for composability, you might decide to put metrics in to understand you know, how uh, cohesive and decoupled your system is so you can compose different modules. Um, and uh, what's interesting is that every system is different because of you optimize for different elements. And we want people to be explicit about sort of trying to find automated fitness functions, having this discussion around that to sort of guide evolution 
for a particular system. But is this not something which can go badly wrong um, with, with, you know, filing automated fitness functions? Because one of the good examples I usually see then is, mm-hmm. is you know, people striving for good test coverage, right? So mm-hmm. we should have 85% test coverage in all our microservices, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I think Koiko um said this once in a talk um, where he said, um, you know, it's a, it's a negative indicator, test coverage, right? It's bad if it's if it's very low, but it doesn't automatically mean that it's good if it's very high, right? No. So so doesn't make this uh, or create this a lot of problems, you know, striving for some you know thresholds or some some metrics or for example cohesion you mentioned. How mm-hmm. do you measure cohesion? Yeah. What is what is a good metric to really? I mean, Elcom is, is super old, right? It, it usually doesn't work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but what, what, what do we have in measure those things? Well, so maybe going back to the first question about being careful about the automated side. So the purpose of evolutionary architecture is not just to have a magic number, but yeah. to make sure that people understand what they're optimizing for and why that's important. Yeah. So I have an old article. Uh, I think actually maybe it's published in the ThoughtWorks Anthology. Uh, which talks about an appropriate use of metrics. It may be published on uh, Martin Fowler's website, actually. Um, And the first thing about metrics is really making sure that you understand and be clear about why you've chosen a metric. And that's the most important thing. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing about the same thing with evolutionary architecture. You want to make sure that people have the right context as to what decisions they make to help optimize for the right choices. So for some systems, it may be about distributability, resilience, other systems, resilience is not so important. Mm. Um, and so it's being clear about what the context is. And then you can talk about the, the metric and um, how you automate that. Mm. And, the, and for, is, so, so think about examples. Is this like how quickly can I do the automated deployment yes, from one case? exactly. Mm-hmm. Right. So it might be about, you know, um, for our system, we want to be able to evolve changes really rapidly, what does that mean? We have a team discussion and then we agree, okay, we want to have deployments within five minutes, mm-hmm. right? So, and I think that's the other interesting thing. It's not just a magic number that somebody decides, but you know, the team building the system understands, mm-hmm. okay, here is what fast is and we want to define it. And then we want to build systems to do that because I think once you have that, What's not helpful is having another person come around saying, oh, sorry, your build's really slow. Yeah. Please fix it, right? It's, so it's, it's quicker more feedback. about commitment, right? Yeah. That the team commits that we exactly. want to be able to deploy and ship this in five minutes. Exactly, time. yeah. Oh. So I think that's the thing about the metrics, and it's really about just automating the feedback so uh, that you never forget about it, right? So mm-hmm. it never regresses. In terms of things like cohesion and coupling, um, there's a couple of different things that you can look at. So one of them is... Um, and I can't think of a specific tool about this, but um, I think of Adam Tornhill's kind of visualization mm-hmm. type stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that if you make a change in an area for, or a domain area, how many parts of the code base does yeah, it touch? Yeah, that's, that's right? interesting. Like how spread is that? It may not give you an idea that it's uh, well cohesive, or like it won't say that it's very well cohesive, but it may say that actually you've touched 20 different parts of your code base. Yeah. So it's clearly not as cohesive as what it could be. Um, and so some of that will also depend on your domain and the changes, because I think this is the thing is that you always have the essential complexity of your domain, which you can't really avo- uh, avoid, but then it's the accidental complexity, mm-hmm. right? So, and that's kind of hard to measure. Yeah, that, that, that's really interesting what he shows when you say, okay, if you touch one code base, you usually always touch the other microservice, mm-hmm. for example, right? Mm-hmm. And then you see that they are crazy. Yeah. So that may give you indicators. Yeah. 
And I think another one that I um, heard of was, um, I forget the name of the metric, but it's the, if you have a class and you have certain fields within that class, um, there's something that you can actually say, okay, if you have methods or functions within that class and then you only use two or three yeah, fields. I, I think it was James Burney who also works for SaltWorks. Mm -hmm. He said um, one interesting thing is how many meetings you have between those microservice teams. And I think this is really interesting. Yes. Also, yeah, right? in today's world, yes. Things, yeah. yeah, absolutely. You see that those microservices yeah. are not so independent as they maybe yeah. should be. Yeah? Yeah. yeah, and minimizing the dependencies, that's another yeah. thing. Yeah. How, how meta can you get with this? So I'm thinking in the, into the blue round right now. So assume I have some metric and I realize, okay, this metric is beyond my threshold that I set. Let's say we want to have a deployment within five minutes and uh, after a few sprints, we realize, or iterations, we realize, well, it's now seven minutes. Mm -hmm. um, would then be the next metric, how long it takes for us to modify, bring the other metric down again? Uh, wouldn't would this be too much <laughs> extreme and uh, too much of a, uh, I don't know, Yeah, I think it's, it's getting quite meta. Okay. Uh, I, I mean, at the end of the day, we all want to deliver systems of value. Mm -hmm. And so, once again, the whole purpose of this is really to help guide decisions. Uh, because I think one of the interesting things with when you design systems for evolutionary architecture you know, what, you're, what we really wanted people to ask is how hard is it to change, right? And so there's an interesting thing where um, I think it's Martin Fowler, Grady Bush, that talks about, you know, architecture are kind of like decisions that are hard to reverse. Yeah, exactly. And so if you make it easy to reverse, it sort of stops becoming architecturally significant and just becomes a design decision, right? So this is why things like the hexagon architecture or ports and adapters patterns are a really great example where if you keep those uh, externalities at one cohesive part of the code base is very easy to swap out. It becomes less architecturally significant. Um, and so a lot of the patterns that we talk about in today's world actually sort of work towards evolutionary architecture. Um, and what we really want people to think about is like, how hard is it to change these things? Is, the, is then the essence to say, we want to have an, an architecture that within which nothing takes over control? From so that's the, the ideal world, the the gold plate that's variant then. But this ends up then in wrapping everything, right? I, I don't know. So this this is now what I, I try to figure out because I'm I'm relatively new to this term and the idea of this yeah. evolutionary yeah. design. Then so yeah. I'm trying to think out. Okay, where where would I place this? How, yes. What's yeah. what's the essence of this? Yeah, you're right. Um, is that you can create too much abstraction, which creates too much complexity, right? Mm -hmm. So let's take a example that maybe many of the people will understand, let's take Hibernate or something like mm -hmm. this, right? Is that you probably wouldn't necessarily create a one-for-one -one wrapper on Hibernate because you couldn't substitute that for another ORM. But you may choose a repository pattern uh, and a sort of interface there that means that you would replace all repository implementations with a different ORM if you wanted to swap out uh, Hibernate. Mm -hmm. um, but that means you could do that without affecting sort of other layers in your system. Whereas if you just use that um, hibernate everywhere in your system without it being in one logical place at the code base, then it's harder to make changes to that. And so this is like one of the examples where Ruby on Rails becomes really hard because often people put, um, you know, uh, sort of um, active record yeah, yeah. Uh, things in controllers all over the place. They're not really in one logical layer, which makes it hard to swap out. Yeah, that's that's why you're so super fast, but at some point you aren't anymore, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's, right. that's right. That's yeah. really the point. Yeah. Complexity. <laughs> yeah, cool. So, and do you then end up 
with with a situation in your architecture where there are some very abstract now where are where there are some things that pretty much define whatever define those future decisions that you can do so that pretty much limit your limit your space because like you said before you can't abstract everything away so that everything is replaceable yeah yeah at some point you have to have some hard decisions uh, yeah absolutely so I mean every every part of building software is about making decisions uh, and so because we all you know, well, as far as I know, all work for companies that don't have unlimited uh, time and money, uh, you kind of have to make choices, right? Mm -hmm. So, but the point of building evolutionary architectures is to try to design systems to keep the maximum number of options open where possible. So it doesn't mean that you don't make a decision, because that means you don't deliver a system of value, but actually when you build a system is that you try to make it easy to change again so that you minimize the extra cost that comes along with that. I mean, uh, I think this sounds very good, and, and but it's very important that you, you stress once more that what you said in the beginning, right? Yeah. Because otherwise you will end up in a very complex, you know, very generic system, but yes. you really need to know what are you striving Absolutely. for, right? Yeah. It doesn't make sense to build um, a very resilient microservice architecture if you build an internal application for 100 people, yes, right? Exactly. So is, <laughs> yes, exactly. So the context matters, and I think that's, exactly, that's yeah. bringing back the ideas of architecture. And I think even with the ideas of applying these principles to evolutionary architectures, um, we also talk about it depends on the types of systems. So, you know, like if you're looking at your normal IT system, you wouldn't really look at applying the same techniques to, say, your mail service infrastructure, right? Like mm. that one is you go out and buy something unless you're Gmail and you're building yeah. Gmail. Yeah. Uh, then if you're building Gmail, then you probably want to be thinking about what do you do to make sure that you can evolve Gmail successfully over time. Uh, similarly, if you have like a help desk system, like a ticketing system, you probably wouldn't apply a lot of the same ideas to uh, uh, to that because you're not going to be making constant changes. But for systems that are kind of what I call business strategic systems, right? So the core money makers or the yeah. things that are competitive advantage, this is where, um, you know, if you go back 20 years ago, you'd be making updates to these systems once every six months. Yeah. Whereas today, you know, the business wants to constantly evolve it, and that's where you want to invest in these techniques. And this is probably one of the reasons why things like microservices have come up a lot easier, yeah. because it means that you can sort of swap out parts a little bit easier, you can upgrade technologies. Um, and there's a trade-off there as well, because you might end up with a bit more heterogeneity in your ecosystem. So, you know, you can't, you know, make sure everyone's using the same thing all over the code base. But it does mean you can make changes incrementally. And I think that's mm -hmm. the key to evolutionary architecture is mm -hmm. sort of also thinking about how do you evolve a system over time um, in a way that it's not just like a big bang change. Mm -hmm. this, sound, this sounds like the evolutionary architecture puts way more focus on the non-functional requirements, yes. like maintainability. Yep. Absolutely, yeah, and evolvability is, I guess, the, the first one. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's one of the focuses of what we wanted to bring back is that, you know, people who've been working on modern systems, microservices, architecture, continuous delivery, infrastructure, they probably won't be surprised by some of the things we talk about because it's kind of captured, they already live up to the essence of evolvable architecture. Sure. But if you're working in a, a, a company that's been around for 20, 30 years and with a more traditional mindset to architecture, they're sort of the audience that we're really trying to sort of convert of saying, actually, this is not how you kind of think about systems today because the pace of change is much more rapid. Sure, sure. Yeah, but I think that's often the case, right? I mean, uh, most of the techniques, I would even say 
people did somehow microservices already before, right? Yeah, absolutely. But then it's important that somebody goes there, writes it down, yes. puts it into a common yeah. understanding, even if we still don't have a fully common understanding. Yes. But I think for microservices, it became much better, right? Yeah. Sam Newman, with his book, he mm -hmm. made it a little bit clearer yeah. what this is really about, and people yeah. started to discuss how big... Yes. Should a microservice be, should it be fed by a pizza, should it be, I don't know. Yeah. There were weird metrics, and at least I think in, in this area we have something, and I think this is the same for evolutionary architecture. Yes. Yeah. We had fitness functions before. Mm -hmm. People who really did a good job in architecturing yes. systems always focused a lot of non-functional systems. Right? There was this saying, ignoring the non-functional um, um, requirements make your systems non-functional. Right? <laughs> I think this is really true, because Absolutely. this really matters. Yeah. Yes. And one thing I also realized um, when I when I talked to, to, to these classical architects is that it became much harder to be a good architect because it's not about the technical skills yes. only anymore, right? You also really need to understand the business very good that you can, you know, yes. slice your application into, into right chunks, right? I mean, it, it, it should have been always like this that architects understand the business. Yep. But, you know, a horizontal, horizontal architecture was much easier because you say, okay, persistence goes there. Yeah. Business logic goes there, few logic goes there, but with microservices, you really need to understand, okay, the payment logic goes there, the customer, I don't know, feedback logic goes there, and we should somehow split this because this is not really related. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so far, I've heard uh, metrics, I've heard architects come, coming to play with this evolutionary architecture. Yeah. Where, where does the developer come in, in this aspect? Well, I mean, uh, this book is also aimed at developers because... Uh, developers are constantly making choices as well. And so sometimes those choices can be architecturally significant or not. And so, um, you know, if they've applied these principles of evolutionary architecture, what should be done is as a team, you should be sitting down and talking about, okay, what are you building or optimizing this system for? So it doesn't need to be the architect that decides on the fitness function. It's really just the team needs to decide on that. And also, you know, can you automate it? Is it worth automating? Some things are difficult to automate. So usability, right? It may mm. make sense to just build it into the process yeah. of doing user testing to make sure that your software is continually usable. Um, uh, other extremes like Netflix, you know, do chaos engineering yeah. <clears throat> constantly to prove resilience because mm. they're at a different scale. Yeah. Um, but I think developers need to have that context and then bring that into their everyday work yeah. But I think the other side is that systems don't stay static again, right? So say six months later, you may end up with a different system. And so this is exactly, say, some of the examples we have at N26 where, you know, we, um, when I started a couple of years ago, we had about 450,000 customers. Uh, we now have 3.5 million customers um, across, you know, multiple countries. We have also new sort of non-functional requirements, like making sure that um, with data privacy, we have the US versus Europe which wasn't really planned back when I first started. So the new fitness functions that you then have to bring into the context. So developers need to really understand, okay, if I make this choice, what does that mean for where data is located? How do we make sure that you know, stays private? So things in the EU stay in the EU, for instance, or things that are in the US stay in the US. Um, these are contexts that developers should be having all the time. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, part of this is also sometimes bringing this into um, your design process. And this is something where agile methods don't really explicitly talk about designing architecture, right? Yeah. Like Scrum or XP don't really say, okay, now you go and sit down and you do an architectural review. Like, yeah, there's sure. no practice around that, no. but it's still important. I, I find myself uh, quite often or more and more often uh, when we in our team design some new interface that we have to implement in yeah. our component, whatever. Yeah. To make the deliberate step, okay, 
we have the basic functionality that, we, that the current story required in it. Yes. Let's think about this interface, what the interface might be able to do in the future, mm -hmm. and then come back again and refine the interface that yes. we defined for this particular function in yes. order to not block us away in the future then. Exactly. And, but at the same time, deliberately not implementing all these future ideas that we had. Just exactly. a, like a playground and figure, yep. figure out what's, what could this API do then. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's one of the um, interesting things where we try to emphasize in the book of it has to be incremental delivery. Yeah. So it's not trying to overly abstract something and cater for all possibilities, but actually saying, you know, in a two-week or a three-month frame, we're trying to optimize for this, mm. and we'll want to iterate over that again. Yeah, but it's, I think it's really hard to find this threshold, right? Don't over-engineer and don't yes. overthink, but, but still, you know, Asia doesn't mean that you are not allowed to think in the future. Right? No. <laughs> That's the point. So you must find it somewhere in between where it still is cost-efficient. Exactly. You know, put a little bit of effort into a future-proof solution, yes. but not, you know, build the, the golden system exactly. again, right? Which yeah. will not hold stand these days. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's kind of interesting because um, some of the practices that we've implemented at N26 are really about encouraging this evolutionary architecture approach. Mm. And part of this is creating a lot of uh, transparency on decisions being made. So yeah. one of the um, uh, processes that we've implemented is like an open RFC or request for comments uh, process. And so um, when a team is designing, say, a change to the interface or a new microservice, uh, they'll end up sort of publishing a document that tries to outline, okay, here's the business problem that we're trying to solve. Here's what we're optimizing for. Here is um, maybe changes that we need to make that may affect these teams. And they write this document. So they talk about what the context is. They talk about what the uh, intended solution is. They talk about trade-offs that they've decided to make. Um, and then they also talk about which solution that they're currently opting for. Um, and part of that is a mandatory review process with people who are immediately impacted. So say you're a consumer of a service and that service is changing its interface. Mm -hmm they would be required reviewers on that document before it goes out to the entire company. Yeah. And so then we publish that out to the entire company, and then that creates a lot of visibility of people saying, oh, but you know, we're working on something like that, and that's going to make it harder for us to change. And so those comments will sort of get involved, um, and we make those, um, like we kind of allow teams to say, okay, you choose if you think it's going to be significant, and typically it comes to that point of if it's something that hits other teams, then it becomes significant. Or if it's more just an internal library or something like that, then it's not so significant because they can swap that team library out, right? This, this, sounds, this sounds similar, or perhaps it is the same procedure mm -hmm. as the extensions of programming languages or some program, programming languages, yes. the, the way it, like the C++ standards committee, yep, bringing, or the Go language. Uh, bringing yes. uh, call for proposals and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, I, I like we, we didn't invent this. I mean, um, uh, like the web is built on RFCs, yeah, exactly. right? Uh, each thing is a new proposal of standard evolution. Um, but one of the things we were looking for are scalable ways to get information out. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because yeah. this is one of the things as we've grown as a company is uh, you know I came in as what I describe as the shakeup CEO, <laughs> is that you know um, getting into a room won't be possible when you have three offices or four offices mm. or when you have you know three hundred engineers. Um, you can't get everyone into the same room at the same time, and so you have to look at scalable processes that become more transparent and. A really great way is looking at programming languages. Looking so at so it's a little bit like um, architectural decision records, yeah. but not afterwards. Mm -hmm. Before, right? You, Absolutely. You do it already before, and exactly. then you say, "Hey, yes. do you want to have this? And do you have any comments on this? Exactly. And everybody can comment on this." Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, so yes. we've tried to create a decision-making process, such as those people who are immediately affected, 
um, are mandatory reviewers and their in input has to be incorporated. Um, other people who comment, uh, their input should be addressed. It doesn't mean it must be incorporated. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, this, again, I again try to apply patterns where I see them. Yep. Um, so please correct me. <laughs> um, because this, this sounds pretty much like one variant of asking the customer for, for uh, implementing or extending the system. Dear customer, we are planning to do the, ex the extension, something that you will need. Mm -hmm. Is it something that you would want like this way? Yes. In, in regular agile matter. So the difference I see now is that you don't have one representative for the customer. You have an, sort of an anonymous group that is uh, working asynchronously. Yeah. So does this then contradict to the original idea, have the customer within your team always at the ready? Whereas this process se seems again like an asynchronous model then. Uh, so the intent uh, from the customer with XP is to try to bring feedback loops in quicker. Mm. Right? And this is the thing where you can't have one customer in this example, one developer representing all teams mm -hmm. because it'll be biased to which team that person is attached to. And so this is really a question of increasing faster feedback through a different mechanism, mm -hmm. which is going for an asynchronous distributed model because uh, documentation scales much better than point-to-point -point communication in this case. Mm -hmm. um, also, when it comes to such technical matters, it's often very important to make sure that the discussion is outlined well. So our RFC template is intentionally built so that it talks about what the problem is, uh, you know, the trade-offs of what we're trying to optimize for, okay. the solution. Because often when you have a point-to-point -point discussion, people will argue over the solution, not agreeing on what they're yeah. optimizing for. Yeah, and it's also interesting for the, for the future to take a look at the history, right? Yes. Why did they choose Kafka? Yeah. Because it was this context, it yeah. was this problem, and we tried yeah, to solve absolutely. it. And maybe in two years, everything is totally different, but at least you have an understanding why they did it, right? Yes. And then you can decide, maybe we shouldn't do it anymore because, you know, the context totally changed, right? Exactly. As you said, yeah. we now moved also to the United States and we have to support different currency. I don't know what, yeah, but yes. it, it's, it's totally different. Yeah. So maybe we should move on. Yeah. yeah, there's an interesting interplay between RFCs and ADRs as well because yeah. RFCs we see as a sort of temporal thing, right? It's facilitating the conversation that you would have with a single customer. Yeah. But at the end of it, when you close an RFC, that sort of turns into a architecture decision record. Ah, okay. Okay. Um, or turns into the so current state. It's an RFC for architectural decision records. You could call kind it, right? of, yeah. You yeah. could call it that. Yeah. Okay, so then, yeah, you get the documentation out of it. The immediate benefit that I see is now that, like you said, David, um, two years ahead of time, or later on, you can see, okay, we did this back then because. Yes. And now we can rethink again. Yes. Yeah, and this, this was I think, I mean, it sounds a little bit rough, maybe, but at some point in time, it also gets tiring if you always have to do the same discussions again and again, right? Yeah, so you can go back to the duration arguments on, on whatever <laughs> side you had. Or at least you understand why yeah, a decision but, you got know, made. For every new developer, I mean, and, and I like, if, if, of course, you need to explain it. I don't want to say that it's it's just read the RFCs or the, the uh, mm. architectural decision records, but at some point in time, it also helps you, right, to onboard new people to yeah. tell them, and he asked me, why do you use Kafka? It seems mm -hmm. not very, very useful decision for me, right? You say, yeah, here's the architectural decision. Let's talk about yeah. it. And then you say, yeah, you're right. Maybe things change a little bit. Maybe we should talk about this again in the future. Yeah. Exactly. And I think this helps you a lot. Yeah. yeah. And what you said is very interesting because you ask, where are the developers, right? And I think this is one of the fundamental questions because if you do not have the developers into this whole idea, 
it will not work out, right? And that's what you also said in the beginning, Patrick. Yes. The developers must understand what are they striving for, right? We do not do test coverage because we want to have 80%. We do test coverage because we have, a, I don't know, very security critical system where we need to have very, very good test coverage or because we need to refactor it a lot or change it a lot and that the tests help us. Right? This sounds the, the classical... Uh, Simon Sinek? Simon, thank you. Yeah. Simon Sinek, the, the question about the why. Yes, yeah. that was why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did this a couple of weeks ago um, when an architect in a, in, a, in a company I'm currently working for um, asked or actually said in the retrospective that there's two less documentation, right? There's two less documentation about the, the, the stuff which is going on there. And and I I saw the problem was not that, that, that people, you know, didn't like to write documentation. You just didn't see a reason why they should do it, right? Mm -hmm. So you need to explain um, that, yeah. that, that, that it was about uh, mainly the, the, the front end stack, which was super modern and people didn't fully understand it. And they wanted to have at least a, a minimum set of documentation. Yeah. And you needed to explain why do we need this now, right? Yeah. Why do we need documentation for this uh, yes. web application? Yeah. Why is it so important for us? And if you understand them and if they understand, yeah, okay, it makes sense to have documentation because, Absolutely. you know, we need it for operations. We need to know what are the deployment units yep. that, that people can operate this and usefully. Yes. And they make it usually, right? But it's all about understanding and, and seeing the sense behind doing something, right? And I think that's the same for, for test courage and, and all, all the things. And what's very important, and I think that we're coming back to this um, um, tech lead again, I think it's, it's very important that you have somebody who is starting this initiative is mm. a very good example right yes. yeah for example tdd you cannot go to a team and say hey let's do ddd now you you maybe should start as a very senior engineer and do ddd and people see hey this guy is doing ddd it sounds interesting maybe i also try to do it and at some point in time people see the benefit of doing it but not because you told them to do so because they saw that maybe brings a benefit yeah uh, I think this all somehow. Yeah, I think it's super <laughs> it, important. Yeah, yeah, it's it's still intertwined. Yeah, exactly. That's what yeah. I wanted to say. Yeah. yeah, and what you were talking about with developers, I think that's why the RFC mechanism is such a great one. Is that it's normally developers who are writing that RFC. Mm. Right? Normally, it's mm. um, a team that decides they need to make a change, and it's facilitated or sponsored by a tech lead. Uh, but it's often the developers who are writing the RFC, preparing it. Uh, of course, and then there's varying qualities of how well they can write the documentation, how yeah. well they can describe it. And then it's other developers who are contributing comments back, right? So that's the one nice benefit of this transparency is that you get lots of different opinions. Of course, this is a challenge of how do you incorporate a lot of those things, which is why we try to separate those people who are immediately impacted by it from other people who just have an opinion. <laughs> uh, and be, be very upfront of those people. Like It may not be incorporated, it will be recognized. And there's a section where we say, okay, People raise these things, we're not addressing it because of the re these reasons, and then that's kind of it. So yeah. there's a clear decision-making process. But I really love this idea because I think you also get a good common understanding, right? Because also the team which creates this IFC yes. gets a common understanding what are they really... Because if, if five people want to do something in a team, yes. it doesn't automatically mean that they really all want to do the same, right? No. But sitting together and writing such, I don't know how long it is, maybe one page, right? Yeah, it's about and three or four normally, yeah, depending okay. on diagrams. Even that long, yeah. And then you really understand what are you actually doing here yes. and why do you do it. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, it's really interesting. And this, is this process of RFCs standardized in terms of you have certain time frames? Or is it again, it depends and just um, have the concept of RFCs? And so we have some guidelines, but um, because it once again depends on how complex the RFC is. 
So we've had RFCs which are about changing a sort of algorithm uh, and there've been like one or two pages. So it normally is related to how complex the change is and how big the RFC is. So I think the largest RFC I've seen is about uh, eight or 10 pages, uh, just because there was a lot of, like it was a quite a complex new service. Um, and so from that perspective, I think in that example, they had a feedback window of about uh, three or four weeks just because they wanted to make sure that everyone, you know, people have holidays and uh, people had enough time to incorporate that feedback. Cool. But a guideline we try to say is to get feedback within two weeks, to not leave it open forever, but once again, to make a decision and then to move forward. This then also means that you have, well, you need to have uh, an extra consideration then when, when doing sprint planning. So you can't do a feature uh, immediately in this sprint because you have, if, if it impacts some interface where others are affected as well, you have to have a, a story before that story. How, how do you handle this in, in planning? Uh, so this is an interesting thing uh, in 26 because we don't really have a standardized uh, agile way of working. So it's not like all teams work on a two-week sprint or all teams work on a one-week sprint. Um, we expect that teams plan their own work and that they deliver regularly. So all teams should be giving an update as to where they are with their current plans uh, on a weekly basis. So in a way, it's like showcase mm -hmm. per week, mm -hmm. um, but it's a bit more like reporting. Uh, but teams, some teams choose like more Kanban so they can adjust their, their work. Other teams do one or two week planning. Um, and then they just need to take into account uh, some of these upcoming work. But because there's so much transparency around this, so with RFCs and stuff like that, normally, mm -hmm. you know, it comes a month or a couple of months before they actually hit a team. So they have enough visibility as to what will actually hit them. That's really interesting because I saw on LinkedIn a lot of N26 jobs these days, of yes. course. Yeah? yeah. And there was no, you know, this classical HL coach and Scrum masters many companies are looking mm -hmm. for. Yes. That's why I already saw that you're not doing classical Scrum here. So what you're doing is that you deliver once per week a showcase you mentioned? No, so um, our teams continually deliver. So um, we now have um, about 350 people in product and tech, uh, lots of different teams. And we've evolved our, what we call a target operating model. So when I first started, it was just teams. Um, we evolved that to larger groups. And then within a group, they can organize themselves into teams that they like per domain area. And now we've moved into a sort of segment, which is really aligning uh, groups uh, with their common goal. So that a segment all works towards a common goal. Uh, so a concrete example is we have a segment called growth. Uh, and within that, we have a couple of groups. So one which is really about our onboarding process, which is mm -hmm. like sign up from website. Uh, we have um, a group which is called KYC, which is a, a banking yeah. thing about knowing your yeah, customer absolutely. identification process which is very regional based, uh, depending on legal documents and things like that. And so their, their um, responsibility is that um, they should be shipping work all the time. So all teams deliver continuously. And I think we're now up to about 300 deploys per week or something like this. So teams are continually building, um, but each week there's a summary of like what groups have been doing. So it's normally like a write-up of saying, okay, we've been working on this feature, um, this is where the state is. If somebody has completed a feature, we actually have a company-wide thing called Friday Celebrations where people can actually sort of demo their feature to the entire company. Oh, cool. Um, and so they can sort of do different progress. But obviously with 350 people, there's a lot of different things going yeah, on. Yeah, sure. Um, but we try to rely at least on the um, what's going on uh, publishing of like what each segment is doing. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So, 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 um, sounds then... To me, that the evolutionary architecture to follow the, this concept 
you need to have different preconditions in your organizational structure then. <coughs> when coming from the, let's say, the traditional or the cliche of a company who, uh -huh. who is adopted, which has adopted uh, Agile by, in by introducing Scrum. Yes. And <laughs> yeah. now you come with, we need to have um, evolutionary architectures. This, this doesn't sound compatible now to me. Uh, so I think there's different scales that you can apply evolutionary architecture. So if you're part of a team working in a large enterprise and you're doing Scrum, uh, your tech lead or one of your developers can say, hey, like, what are we trying to optimize our system for? Like, you can actually start implementing those things there. If you're already in a continuous delivery environment, you're probably already doing practices that are compatible with evolutionary architecture anyway. Mm -hmm. um, if you're not, then actually that's a really great conversation to say, actually, how could we get these changes out quicker? We might need to go down the path of a journey towards continuous delivery so that planned changes can actually happen more frequently. Because continuous delivery, uh, we see as more of a prerequisite to be able to do evolutionary architecture. Because it's great if you design all these things, but you never really know until you actually release it, right? Okay, so if you have a cadence of, let's say, twice a year, mm -hmm. you're beyond any introduction of evolutionary architecture then? Uh, it'll be harder. You won't get okay. the complete benefits. But at the same time, even if you have a release cadence of s six months, you know, you can actually say, we want to be able to evolve our system quicker, but in order to do that, our current constraint is our release process. Right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. I think if you just release once a year or twice a year, you're not striving for really being incremental in what you deliver, right? And so maybe you don't even need evolutionary architecture because you say, okay, it's, it's quite strict that you say, okay, in this next half here we do this and then we do this. Right. But I think you need evolutionary architecture if you need to evolve very fast because you work directly with customers and things change very often. Right? And, and those things are very intertwined, right? Because like, if you are trying to move towards evolutionary architecture and speed up change, uh, then one of those things might be, is what is the constraint to release in six months? It might be because you use some vendor tool yeah. and they're constraining you to a six-month process, right? So that's actually the thing preventing you from changing. And so you might actually then think about re-architecting your system to remove that constraint so you can make changes quicker. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I was wondering because coming from, me myself coming from safety critical yes. areas where they essentially don't change that quickly. They, yep. If it's changed twice a year, then that's quick. Let's yes. say. So, yeah. And this industry is only slowly changing to something. So it seems, or it sounds to me like that this industry is not yet ready or at least not yet compatible with such approaches. Well, I think this is where everyone needs to challenge about why isn't it. I mean, fintech is a really classic example where mm. you know it's also heavily regulated, mm. and you know people are always surprised when we say we deploy hundreds of times per week. It's like, well, how do you do that? Well, you know, we don't have a person executing checklists on things because that doesn't help us scale. We automate that feedback yeah. because you can, right? Sure. We have different tools. So, um, you know, we're working on something that automatically will fail the build as soon as a library is detected with a vulnerability, right? At the moment, it's a manual process where we do have an automated report, but we're trying to improve that because that will allow us to speed up evolution. Mm -hmm. um, but somebody has to make it a priority. Uh, I think that's why evolution architecture is a great lens of mm -hmm. saying that, is that we want to get faster at evolving that constraint. Mm. Yeah, that's, 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 I, I think that's the key point, yeah, you mentioned now, yeah. But I... I I think it's also not it's it's not the case that you need to apply it everywhere and every 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 time, right? It's the same for HL. I mean, yeah. I worked with a with a team a few months ago where they complained, and it was really funny for me to to hear this. They said everything 
I mean, they said, why, why does everything change all the time, right? So <laughs> they said, we are now agile and everything changes all the time. And, and then I said, I mean, that's the whole sense of being agile, right? You cannot say we want to be agile, yes. <laughs> but on the other hand, we don't want to have changes, right? And yes. you don't need agile, then you can just do waterfall if everything is clean. Or you could do right? hardware because then it also doesn't change. Maybe, <laughs> yeah. Maybe. but I think it's, it's really, it's always the why. Why do we yes. do this, right? And I think it's also not correct that 100% of the software we deliver must be HL these days, right? Maybe we have some, as you said, safety critical stuff which still needs to be very clearly tested and where you have a lot of QA afterwards. Maybe we cannot even automate it. I, I would hardly question this if it cannot be automated, but maybe there are some reasons why you cannot do this, right? Maybe then it's fully okay to, to go in a different approach. Yeah? And I think for N26 it was very important to be fast, right? So yes. To be fast on the market, to bring yep. new features very fast and, and so on. Yeah? But maybe being fast is not the main goal of safety critical um, software. Maybe it's still to be very safe, right? <laughs> well, maybe then you need different approaches. And I, I think it's interesting because I think being in a startup you get to challenge the way that things are done typically, right? And yeah. I think this is a thing where people often say, okay, if you are going fast, it means that you're less secure, you're less safe. Yeah, you're right. But actually, it's often you are much safer and faster in certain ways because of how you implement so what's more safe when you have somebody who's going through a manual checklist because a human will make an error and they'll forget to check something on that checklist or if you have a robot that is automatically checking all of the things assuming you can actually check some of those things because a robot will never get tired you'll get instantaneous feedback and we like to describe how you can get like things like security and speed at the same time if you're clever with how you implement the processes. Yeah. But if you're not, then obviously you'll have a lot of mistakes and you'll be slower. Yeah, con considering the, the, the current trend, like having your electric car update its firmware while you are driving or have your airplane perhaps updated by a satellite yes. while it's flying. Yes. So this is currently beyond uh, acceptance, I would say. Yes, yeah, that, that one's a, a different extremity. Like that one you want a lot of confidence. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, so maybe uh, one one last tip from you. How, how would you how would you start? Is if you say okay, you are working for a software company. Maybe you lead a small team. Yes. What, what would be a good start to to dive into evolutionary architecture? What what should you start with? Uh, so the way that I often recommend people to do is do a little bit of a technical retrospective mm -hmm. um, over asking the team what is hard to change in your system. Yeah. Okay. Right. Uh, reflect on what are the constraints that make change hard. And also, uh, basically, do a fitness function finding process of saying, you know, mm -hmm. what are the non-functionals that we're trying to optimize for for this system yeah, yeah. today? Because you know that may change again in six months' time. But in my experience, a lot of developers don't even know what are the non-functionals that they're yeah, trying to yeah. optimize for. Yeah. So they're the two um, big good starting points of saying, okay, what are you trying to optimize for, and what's most painful to change right now, or what's preventing you from evolving. And mm -hmm. making changes and then that will hopefully guide better discussions and and the next steps mm -hmm. yeah it's so interesting i think that's a very good starting point yeah cool so i think we are again at this part of development belongs where we talk about local yes events. what happens in vienna what, what happens, happens in, in the local community yeah so we we still have the global of code retreat coming up in november two days uh, we have the 10 year anniversary anniversary of uh, globally of code retreats so on 15th and 16th of November, so it's Friday and Saturday. Finally, some people that don't want to spend their Saturday can join in on a Friday and see whether or not their employers will allow them to <laughs> do this weird um, 
meeting where people train for, for deliberate practice. And uh, we will join in at Zülke, Vienna on the 15th and at Tech Talk on the Saturday then. So look for the homepage of Global Day of Code Retreat for more details. Cool. So there's also one event from We Developers. Um, we Developers is a conference which started in Vienna, actually moved to Berlin last year, or this year actually. I think they were in Berlin this year, the first time. Um, and they still have a small event in Vienna, yet it's called um, Developer, uh, we are developer, not developer, Milosh. We are developer congress. It's mainly about cloud, AI, machine learning, so, so quite interesting topics. Um, I've seen that there are still tickets um, available, so maybe this could be interesting. It's also a one day conference. I think it's even on a Saturday. I'm not sure. Um, and they also have a call for, for papers, so if somebody is interested to talk about this interesting cloud or artificial intelligence topics, I think it's a good fit. Yeah. So, Patrick, uh, your company, N26, is also planning to do meetups in the future That's in right. Vienna? Yes. Uh, yeah, so um, we're opening an office in Q3, Q4. Um, we're doing, uh, we typically do meetups uh, as well. So if you look at the N26 meetup page, uh, there'll be uh, advertisements, I guess, when we uh, start to host more regular meetups in Vienna. We've done everything from how we build our iOS and Android uh, uh, apps to um, how do we structure our teams to uh, what does engineering management do to uh, security trainings and capture the flag type uh, activities mm -hmm. so and do you have do, do you patrick have anything you want to advertise for yourself your company what have you yeah um i mean uh, we are hiring in vienna so if anyone is looking to join a modern banking platform where we do uh Hundreds of deployments per week, uh, microservices architecture, Java and Kotlin on the back end, uh, very sort of modern tech stack in the cloud. Uh, then have a look at n26.com slash jobs uh, for current opportunities. Cool. So what is, what is important for, you, for people who want to join N26? What do you think is different from N26 than from maybe other companies? What should people bring with? Yeah, so even though we're a bank, we're, we like to describe ourselves as more of a tech company in banking. Mm -hmm. Uh, so we're really looking for good engineers rather than just developers. So people who really think about system design, who think about site reliability, observability, building that in, people who care about sort of craftsmanship and testing, uh, and also people who know how to collaborate well uh, because we're at a very large scale. There's a long list already, but yes. I guess, yeah, cool. And do you provide any benefits to you? provide training budget or stuff like this usually? Yes, yeah, we have a, a training budget uh, um, and then people can go to conferences um, with that or they can take training, whatever they like to use. Mm. Um, we also encourage people to uh, speak at conferences. So if people are speaking, then they can go to the conference for free as well. And they don't have to use their annual leave for that. Uh, yeah. Cool, sounds good. Yeah, thanks, Patrick, for having you once more here at this episode. It was really interesting. Uh, I think I learned a lot. <laughs> thank you very <laughs> much for having me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and thank you very much. I hope you have a great couple of days in Vienna. Maybe we'll see each other again. Indeed. Thank you very much. Cool.